All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mission 300 podcast. My name is Jason, one of your co-hosts through the journey of conversation of masculinity of Mission 300, joined, as always, or as usual, by the other co-hosts, Brian, David, Caleb, and Tommy. We're going to start with Tommy. How are you doing today? Tommy, for our listeners, since we don't do video, is wearing a backwards hat right now, which is very, very old school. Very new school at the same time. He's looking very fresh. How are you feeling tonight, Tommy? I'm feeling great. How are you guys? You, and you're not self-conscious about the hat now that I pointed it out? A, a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I have a fragile ego, so... I'm I mean, go it is a good it. look on you, honestly. Oh, oh, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty good. Uh, not wearing a hat tonight, this evening, is Caleb. Caleb, how you doing? Doing great. Doing great. You're just wondering what I was going to pick out about your background or anything to, to kind of <laughs> yeah, point out. There's a fall de- decoration back there. If you want to, it's like some scarecrow or something. Probably evil. Need that's, to take it down, honestly. Not at all creepy. Yeah, this is this is yeah. a Christian podcast, so let's go ahead and get rid of that. But yeah. And Brian and David, are you guys awake and alert? Third cup of coffee in. David, yes, sir. Sleepy eyes. Dave, David had to resort to coffee this morning. Yeah. But it it's okay. I've I've only had one cup. One cup. A cup for the rest of us in America is also known as a five gallon bucket. Um, but let's just <laughs> let that go. All right. That's a great segue into our topic for this episode, which we're talking about the soldier in Second Timothy chapter two. Now in the last episode. We mentioned this passage a little bit, but what we wanted to do in the next few is zero in on the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Um, In this episode, we want to zero in on the soldier and get a little more detail and a little bit of perspective for us today on what, how we can apply this to ourselves today, how we can take the words of Paul, who's sort of a father figure to Timothy, and how we can take that for our day-to-day and use it to inspire ourselves, but to give us some direction, too, as words from a father should. So we wanted to start talking about a soldier, and a lot of times when you think about a soldier in biblical terms, you think of the centurion, and we have spent minutes and minutes and countless minutes um, diving into the life of soldiers and centurions before recording this. So we want to share some of that with you guys today. Well, first of all, The criticalness of this is when you think of the time that uh, the Bible's written, the time of Jesus, the time of uh, Paul and Timothy, they're not in a country that's theirs. It's it's run by Rome. So Rome is the the ruling power over this whole this whole time period. And of that, the Roman soldiers and the Roman army were were often the ones that were the the rulers of those regions. So if they took a region, they would put in a high-ranking Roman, and then the the soldiers would be the police of that state. So there was so much different action where they ran the civil life as well as the uh, the military life. So in non-combative type times, then they would be operating in the civilian capacities for the sake of Rome, and so when Paul is addressing what it looked like to be a soldier, it was all around them constantly because that's who they would see, whether it was an official, whether it was the police, whether it was someone in charge of uh, 
some kind of fee or, or tax, not necessarily the actual collector, but the one that would be overseeing how that is done, it would be a Roman soldier. And the other factor that's kind of fascinating is how many centurions or Roman soldiers saw who Jesus was, even when his own people couldn't see him. So these are men that aren't Jewish. They're not necessarily believers. They had this belief in God, but they recognized who Jesus was because of the position that they carried. They understood something and they could see it. And I just think this kind of, we'll touch into some of that. So we're not going to do the expertise. There's no expert on the, in this podcast on the Roman soldier. Uh, I love the history of it, but there's so much information on it and it's sometimes conflicting. So if you, if we say something, we're not speaking from an expert, we're trying to give a context and that's where we're going to go today. And, but Paul addresses Timothy and he says to endure hardship as a good soldier. So in other words, the things that he would be experiencing in life he would have to develop a sense of endurance, but in order to get a concept of what that looked like, you have to consider what the soldier's life was like of that time of the Roman soldier. And so that's the picture. So we kind of want to go into that to kind of get a picture. What would Timothy see in that, that he would seek to gain understanding about? Because at the end, Paul says, may God give you understanding in these things, referring to the soldier, the athlete, and the hardworking farmer. So we want to delve in and try to gain some understanding about these three pieces. If you were to be told, endure a hardness as a good soldier, you don't even have to jump into the Roman one, even though that's who would be spoken about. What would, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What a good soldier looks like? What's a good soldier? I think if we are going with the Roman example, I've always been influenced in my view of like Roman centurions and such um, from the movie Gladiator. And so I think like every, like if you look at the, watch the movie and see how the other characters like respect Maximus, it's like he displays all the character, all the characteristics that like we would value in a good soldier. Like he leads first with his men. He's loyal to his men. He like endures hard things. He was just like a good leader, loyal to like the ideals of the Roman army, even more so than the powers that be. Like you'll see that in the movie. So that's where my perspective has always been like influences, particularly on the Roman part because of that movie and watching that. So 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 to summarize that, are you saying the thing that really stood out was almost more of the the discipline together and the honor between each other and the the camaraderie yeah i think the big word there is honor because i think that's why like when you look at watch the movie like you see certain characters love maximus like in respect him they know he could lead the whole ar roman army if he wanted to and he doesn't but it's because of i think yeah that that word like it's like honor and I think he honors his men, they honor him and like what that looks like specifically, maybe different in different situations. But I think a big thing there is definitely his honor and integrity, honor and integrity would be the two things. And you see that in the movie, how it motivates his character and in everything that he does. 
I also think you have to have a a high level of selflessness when you're a soldier, especially looking at certain military tactics at the time to where in certain formations you have a shield, but your shield isn't there to protect you. It's there to protect the guy to your right. And so you have to have this mindset of the things I have are not just for me. They're so I can fulfill my role in this group effort and not from a, you know, I mean nothing. I'm just part of the collective. No, but you have your brothers around you. And so the tools that you have are there to help them and to help the group as a whole. It's not really this idea of, well, let's all just run into battle and everybody split up and like Hollywood style, everybody kill 30 enemy soldiers by yourself while doing backflips and Chuck Norris roundhouse kicks. It, th- there's, there's a structure to it and there's a unity and a camaraderie in how they fight and how they operate. And I think the good soldier, or in some translations, the the proper soldier, the soldier who is fulfilling his role the right, godly, honorable way, is doing these things, not for personal gain, but because there's a goal that he is pursuing along with his brothers. And to kind of piggyback off that for myself, I I see like a soldier as like a, a disciplined life right? Like it's a way of life for that soldier. Like um, I think of like soldiers making their bets, right? It has to be in a certain order, right? They're not just kind of lazy all over the place. And so when I think of like soldiers in general, I I think of very disciplined people, very structured, very ordered people. Um, And then I'm, I'm also just kind of thinking here too, of like the difference between like, uh, like someone who's like drafted into the army or forced into the army versus someone who's like enlisted to be a part and hmm. like an enlisted soldier is different than like a drafted soldier or someone who maybe isn't um didn't choose to be there right i think that's a huge difference because we were talking before um we started recording on the mindset of a soldier how does a soldier think and you have a hugely different perspective if you are coerced or drafted into something as opposed to i'm volunteering to go do this or i'm choosing the career of a soldier it's a hugely different mindset and i wonder how how much different the message is received then if you've got this mindset of well i'm a christian because i don't want to go to hell but now that I am, I have to be a good little soldier and I have to endure all this crap through life as opposed to the mindset of a son in the kingdom who is a soldier and you are willingly taking on this responsibility and stepping into that role. It's completely different. Yeah. Are we doing these things because we want to get to heaven or are we doing these things because we actually love God and want to pursue his purposes and plans and You could, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking like one thing you could say about all the different aspects that we've mentioned is like maybe even a normal person could do some of those things like having discipline. But I think what defines a soldier is that he does it in spite of like how hard it is, no matter what, basically. Like whereas some people might do that on occasion or can even do that. But like if the circumstances change, maybe they're not successful in it whereas like a soldier like with like going back to my example with like honor 
like he would have honor and integrity no matter what, no matter how hard it is. And I don't know if that's relevant to what we're talking about, but I think like knowing that they do it in spite of everything else. I think we can add into into this mix. Um, keep in mind, I, I want to read one more piece that he's that Paul tells Timothy about the soldier. It says no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So we have this this soldier that wants to please the one who enlisted him. And I'm going to venture to say, to be in all honesty, when we're talking about this honor, integrity, cohesion, I don't think it starts out that way. I don't think a soldier just going in when they start in, especially, uh, you know, yeah, boot camp, you you know, you can you can talk through and we've seen videos of different soldiering of their training and their development. And we're not dealing with the special forces. Let's just start with just like your first going in, like there's this stripping almost a humiliating down to what you were on the outside means garbage to me. You're going to be what I'm going to make you into. And so there's this stripping away. And I think there's a little bit of that. Uh, and, and again, we're not making Christianity into, oh my gosh, this is going to be awful. I think David said it. There, there's something that changes in you, but there's a reality that comes in. Listen, you're we're most often, we've been a soldier for the other side for so long. In fact, many people who quote unquote believe, most of them still live as a soldier for the other side. They just want a little bit of that, the God insurance kind of thrown on top. So uh, not to offend anyone out there, just the, the reality is if you're all in on something, you're all in on something. So keep in mind when we become a believer, it says we make Jesus our Lord. And we don't really use that term too often when we invite Jesus into our heart, because we kind of invite him in as the caring sheep herder. That is, he does love us. He does care for us. He is going to die for us. He He's done, there's not much more sacrifice that he could do on our behalf. But at the same token, he's Lord. That means you submit to his kingdom and his lordship. So it's not like you come in so you can be free to do your will now. It's you're surrendering. And Paul says, yeah, you're a child, but he becomes a bond slave. So a bond slave is different. There's a slave that was freed, but he chose to stay with his master on his own free will. They became a bond slave. They're bonded to him. So it was a very different a different thinking. Paul calls himself a bond slave. He calls himself a son. He calls himself born. He calls himself adopted. He calls himself a friend. He, but Jesus is Lord. This is the concept that Paul is telling Timothy, and there's a reason that he's telling him this. So again, for those that are listening, like, oh, great. So I got to go have this hard life being a Christian. I would rather just live over here. Remove all that for a moment. The reason Paul is telling Timothy this is because it's getting so hard. Life is getting hard. So Paul is telling Timothy to deal with what you are walking into and facing with the church being persecuted, Nero, the the, the slaughtering of Christians, the uh, you're too young and the older people aren't listening to you. You're trying to keep cohesion. There's all these false doctrines coming in that's countering the things that you've been la laboring with. 
Paul is getting ready to die. Timothy, this is his last letter. He's losing the one that's been running all of this, and the weight is falling on Timothy. That's why he's telling him this. So I, to put that into context, so yeah, you don't have to do anything, but if you start realizing what you are and where you're going and what God's called you to and the weight that starts creeping in, this is an encouragement, not a burden. If if Timothy gets a hold of this, he'll be able to hold steady through the rest of his life doing what he's called to do. Okay, with that said, back to this. So we have a soldier when they first go in, uh, they have to be trained. I guarantee a lot of these early Roman soldiers when they first enlisted, uh, I don't know what the corp the corporal punishment wasn't probably very friendly, but I'm sure they experienced a lot of it in the development to get to where they are. Cohesion happened as they began going through these things together. Cohesion happened in their training. Cohesion happened in, in their functionality almost before war ever took place, but it was hard. So they were deliberately hard on the soldier to develop them into cohesive, thinking, strong, unbending units. So what was the training like? And so just keep in mind when a soldier, a Roman soldier came in, they would uh, serve 25 years. They weren't allowed to get married up until the second century. That's where St. Valentine came in and got his life killed as he was marrying the soldiers, but it was forbidden to marry. Uh, when, you, when you were done, uh, you often got a plot of land in a region that they just conquered, which would do two things. One, it was a way to pay you. The second one was it was also able to keep some stability in that new region by planting soldiers into it. So understand how much the role of the soldier played in Roman life. So they were skilled in both things. They didn't just go to war. They had to learn how to run civics, how to build, how to plant, how to uh, function, how to do all of the other duties as well, building bridges, uh, standing guard, um whatever so they they were dually trained in multiple things so that's kind of a little bit picture so how were they not entangled in the affairs of this life what what does that mean when you think of don't be entangled with in the affairs of this life what does that look like one thing i kind of wanted to point out on like there's a worldly soldier that has to endure hardship world like and the way things have come across with natural means. But uh, I kind of want to point out that biblically, there's like a godly way to deal with it. I mean, I think we all know the verse in Philippians that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? There's a development of that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not like you just naturally are able to do. I mean, like, forgive my wording a little bit and take kind of what I'm saying with a grain of salt so you can understand. Like, what I'm saying is you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, but you have to develop that trust and development in Christ. Like, even Paul says in 2 Corinthians eight through 10 of he said for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in asia 
for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death, but it was make us it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us with such deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Um, but even Paul states that they were so utterly burdened that they despaired of life itself. They All their human strength was gone. And, I mean, whether you want to take it on the, like... God tests us or whatever to make us to build this up. You can go wherever you want with that. But what I'm just saying is there has to be a learning of God's side of the issue, right? How to deal with it with God. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that goes back to the, the training that a soldier initially goes through like a, a, a boot camp type of scenario. And especially like you were saying, Brian, if you call Jesus Lord, that means that everything about you is, well, this you can picture it this way where everything about you is taken away and you don't have any preferences or wants or desires anymore because now you are enlisted under a King or a Lord it's, it's no different than if a soldier were to come into boot camp and say, okay, yeah, you're my commander, but only as long as it doesn't interfere with my crochet and bridge night on Thursdays. Like, that is not a thing. You don't get to call someone Lord and then say, as long as your lordship only influences me in these ways. You have to be completely given over to it. And once that happens, there is a lot of development and growth and training that happens. The beautiful thing is it's all for your benefit and for the benefit of the kingdom and because of the position that grace puts you in and the identity that's brought in. And so it's it's all these good things. You're not this miserable creature just saying, oh, man, this is the worst life in the world having to be a soldier. It, it's, it's not that depressing. It's life-giving. But there is this aspect of the things that you had before are left behind. And new new desires, new passions start coming up, or maybe it's new focuses. Or you, I think that's where I start to see part of the leaving the entanglements of the world, or not being entangled by the things of the world or everyday life. Because as you're grown and as you're trained, you start to see those things have less of a pull because you realize they're not as important anymore, or at least you start to see their their proper place in your priorities. And I, that might sound a bit drastic, so you might have to correct a bit of that because it's not that everything about you gets wiped clean and you're a blank slate. You don't have any emotions or passions anymore. It It's not quite that drastic, but there is this idea of if he's the Lord, then that's it. I, that's a great point. And I, I think we, maybe I'll just, if you could understand this, a brand new believer it's not becoming a soldier. There's a growth process. You, you, this is hitting a point when the heart has been developed in this relationship and I'm so in now things are happening and I've been given a responsibility to go accomplish something. And I understand the responsibility that he's given to me to go. 
now this starts playing in because you're going to be starting to look for the tools because it's going to be bigger than you. It's going to be bigger than what you you can handle. And you're going to want to step forward into it, even though it's hard. Paul, Paul wanted to go be what he was, even though he didn't want everything that came along with what he was. Does that make sense? Like in his conversion, he wanted to go and speak to the Gentile. He wanted to bring this gospel. He wanted to do that. He did not want to go to prison. He did not want to get beaten. He did not want those things. But he wanted this so much, so he was understanding that. And I think that's when we're seeing the soldier part or the athlete or the hardworking farmer, we're not talking about children in something. We're talking about someone that is beginning to mature in this relationship and now this surrendering you're starting to understand there's got to be more to life than this you know you kind of hit that as like is this what life is about is this what christianity is about no now let's step into this so there's an exchange for something you deeply desire but it you have to deal with this as well so it's two things that come together so i think we have to kind of put that into a little bit of the context of this, which is what you're, I think you're trying to say, Jason, too, is, you know, he's our Lord. <laughs> Most people have no understanding of authority, respect, any of those mm -hmm. things. They just know they need a savior. So they listen and they come in and there's this maturing as a child, like a baby doesn't know not to be a spoiled brat. It just is. So there's this growth in it. And then there hits a point where it's like, you've hit maturity. It's like, okay, now it's time to grow up. Here's where you're going to go, but you'll be, you'll be the most fulfilled at the end, but this is the tools to get you to that, that place. So that's kind of where we're at in talking about this. So let me ask this. We talk about Jesus being Lord, but that all ties to authority. And when you look at the centurion, he understood lordship better than all of the Israelites. Because Jesus said, I have not seen greater faith in all of Israel than this centurion. So we can break down the story in a minute, but I want you to catch, how did he see that Jesus was Lord and his word only needed to be spoken? How did he see that? I'm not sure if I have the answer for it, but I was thinking it is interesting um like you know i don't know any bible references for this so but i just know this is like historically true but like when jesus came a lot of the israelites idea of the messiah was somebody who was going to come and take power and relieve them of the roman oppression and stuff and it's interesting that the roman centurion recognized jesus as the authority, but the people who were looking for power didn't recognize him. And I think that's an interesting comparison right there. And I think that might help in the answer to the question, um, because it kind of helps define like the difference between even like power and control versus authority. And I think when the Roman centurion saw Jesus, he recognized the authority, not because of maybe necessarily the way he like was doing things or like actively enforcing his authority, but maybe more like the presence he carried and in a sense, the way that he acted, but it's kind of the opposite of maybe the world's ideas of even what 
authority is supposed to look like. And so I don't know how that helps with the answer, but that was something I was thinking about. Okay, I, I got to pipe in here because I have never thought about this thought till you said this, and I think this is really interesting. So comment on this is the... Jesus kind of written, he had power over the enemy. He had power over the devil. He had power over spirits. He had power over sickness. He had power over disease, right? But the centurion said, you are a man of authority, not a man of power. I also am a man of authority, under authority. So I say to this one, go and he goes. He say to this one, come and he comes. Think about it. I'm under authority, so I say. He didn't say, I have power over these people. He said, I'm under authority over these people. But it gave him, as we would view, power. Mm -hmm. The Jewish people looked at it as just power. The centurion saw it as under authority. So what is the difference of being under authority and having power, not in the interpretation, but in the operation. So not as people would view it, but in the operation of it. What's the difference? I want to say the first word that popped in my head was responsibility, because the one who has authority realizes that their decisions have consequences. And whereas the one who believes they just have power it's selfish without any thought of the consequences of their actions. And so maybe when the Roman centurion sees Jesus, he could also recognize that he had power, but then he knew, oh, he has authority because he's actually making decisions on what to use his power on and what not to, and being responsible with the power that he has, because like himself, like the Roman centurion, He's under an authority that's given this to him as a responsibility to actually be beneficial to people and not to be used for selfish means. When I when I think of the difference between power and authority, instantly that came to my mind, and it may not be the correct thought, but it's what came to my mind was fear, is that power often rules by fear. <clears throat> You're scared to go to someone because you're fearful of what they're going to say. But a person of authority, you can go to a person of authority and there's no fear. They might not go with your direction or they might not listen to your counsel. They will go under their own authority, right? But there's no fear in there. And to me, that's what makes like a powerful leader is the one who has authority. If you're if you're constantly scared to go to the this person of of leadership, I would say that's that's a person leading in power, not leading with authority. I think of like uh, Band of Brothers, um, uh, uh, Lieutenant is it Lieutenant Sobel versus uh, Dick Winters, like. That's the example right there. Like, uh, Winters was a man of authority, and Sobel was a man of power, right? He ruled by fear. You do this, do this, do this. The men didn't like him. But Winters was under the authority, right? 
and when I think of that too, I think of uh, I think it's in one of the first episodes where um, they're trying to uh, lead, right? They're doing like an army training, and they're trying to hit their objective. And you see um, Sobel, he's, he's got his map, and he's like, "This isn't where we're supposed to be," and he's like trying to figure it out. That's a man who who, who doesn't know. He's scared, right? Because he's scared of the people in authority above him. Because what, how does he lead? He leads with power. He leads with fear. And so could you imagine trying to then do something and <laughs> you're under this constant pressure? Whereas Winters, you know, he executed with what he was given, but he didn't do it out of fear, right? He led the men. He was in charge of the men. I think of in like one of the last episodes where um, they're going to, I think they're going to like ambush a German, a German encampment. And he says, you guys go when you see the smoke. Well, he just takes off running. <laughs> he takes off running, and he's the first one there. That's a man of authority. But it's interesting that even a man under authority understands the bigger picture, what's going on, and is prepared to end that bigger picture. A man of power is really about what, about, what is my position? What do I get out of it? But a man under authority is thinking about how do I best bring those that are under my power? I thought this was interesting for those that don't believe that there should be any, um, that soldiering is against the Bible and uh, battles and all those things are against the Bible and Jesus wasn't like that. He was a harmless lamb and this wasn't in the Bible and we're not supposed to do any of those. We're supposed to be a pacifist. Uh, well, we're not supposed to be an aggressor, but we're not supposed to be a pacifist. So anyway, just for those who are on the fence of how all that looks, I feel John like Baptist, that theological class. Yes. So John the Baptist that. says something very interesting. So Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet that ever walked. John the Baptist. So Jesus' words, the greatest prophet, now I'm not saying all the prophets weren't great, they they were, because later on we see the transfiguration and we see Elijah and Moses standing with Jesus. But he's making this point about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord, baptizing people into repentance to prepare their hearts for Jesus to, to come, die, and be received. So this is John the Baptist's role. And it says... Uh, in Luke chapter 3, verse 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him. So these are the soldiers coming to John the Baptist saying, what shall we do? I want you to picture this. I'm going to surrender into a new way. I'm going to change what I am and become something new. I want to go and be cleansed. What shall I do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. What he did was cleaned up the motivations and the heart thinking is what needs to change, not your job as a soldier. Because here's the deal. They couldn't get out from being a soldier. Once you committed to be a soldier, you're a soldier. Even the tax collector, most of them were born into being tax collectors. They didn't just like hey, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to school and become a tax collector. They were assigned being a tax collector. 
So they did. The problem is they started taking advantage of their position and they they did wrongly. But I thought this was just so interesting is that the soldier was not supposed to intimidate, which means don't become powerful and abuse your power. Don't abuse your authority. Don't abuse that. So that brings it back to authority. And don't accuse falsely. Don't don't use your position to influence negativity on other people, right? Be content with your wages. Don't be looking for other things. See, if you're discontent with your wages as a soldier, you're going to be accused, you're going to intimidate, you're going to do things to gain advantage from the people. But if you got those moral things right, you're actually functioning as a good soldier. One thing I was thinking about with like the whole power versus authority aspect, especially Tommy, when you were talking about like Sobel operating out of power because maybe he had the same perspective of those above him being in power, thinking about like even ourselves, like thinking about God and is he like an authority over us or a power over us? And then how we were like, how that makes us respond to like metaphorically speaking, like orders from our commander, you know, very metaphorical, even thinking about that, making sure we have, the right perspective of who God is in our life. And he's not like some power using fear to get us to do what he wants to do. He's an authority who has like Lieutenant winners had the best intentions for his men. And what was like the best way to go through the battle when he gave them a command, even if it was hard to do, even if he had to pick two soldiers to go first into the, you know, to scout out something where it was more dangerous. So I think like with the whole power versus authority, like you have to, a soldier has to trust his leader. And I think like, you know, thinking about us as soldiers, we have like the best possible, most perfect leader. So we can trust that his authority is good for us. And it's not like this power over us that's trying to get us to follow commands to make sure we're doing the right thing or blah, blah, blah. It's like an authority that's guiding us to do the best possible thing, even if it's hard. And so I think like even thinking about that aspect of like what's our perspective of power versus authority, can it influence like what we think about God as a power versus an authority over us? And so I think having that's important for our lives too. That way we have a good perspective on like when God asks us to do things in life and knowing the place it's coming from. For the context of this, mm -hmm. God is all-powerful mm. so he's the top of the food chain so he is power but he chose to use his word to frame the worlds and he won't violate his own word so he actually chose to come under the authority of his own power so when Jesus says, I only do what the Father says to do or what the Father does, because they're one, he basically is submitted to himself and won't violate his own word. He cannot lie. So he's all goodness, which is hard to understand because we operate from a sense of brokenness looking at goodness. He has no deception in him. He has no trickery in him. He's the God of love. He's all those things. But he chose to submit himself to himself.
that put him under authority. So like you see, Marcus Aurelius had all power to do whatever he wanted in Rome. Or actually, this is a better example. We can see in um, Darius with Queen Esther, he had all power over the kingdom. But once his word went out, he had to submit himself to the role of the kingdom that he was under that you couldn't change your word. That's being under authority, yet all-powerful. But he had to operate under authority. And that picture is has a similarity in heaven. So just for those who are listening, God is all-powerful. But the reason we can see his nature of authority is because he chose to submit himself to authority. He doesn't just randomly change. God says, I don't change. He never changes. And he doesn't lie. And he's all love. And he submits himself to his word. So this is the picture that we have with what he chose to do. So it still ties in, but I wanted to clarify that. I, I think just to kind of wrap my... Go back to Bannon Brothers real quick. Uh, I was just thinking about that that scene again where where Sobel's like trying to figure out the map, right? And there's a fence and he couldn't, he didn't know what to do, right? Because the fence not supposed to be there. But then one of his soldiers, you know, sounds like the, the major and says, oh, just cut down the fence. It's so interesting, like a man with power could be stopped by a fence where a man with authority sees the fence and knows I go through that, right? Oops, I broke the rule, but I know my goal. I know my end mission. I know how to complete. I have to go through. And it's it's so interesting to like see that played out there. But then also when you go to the Bible and the centurion says, Jesus, just say it. Your word will be done. You're a man of authority. And that's like, that to me is like where it gets is like, a man of authority knows what he's going to do. And it's so cool to see the centurion recognize that in Jesus, that he's a man of authority, just like me in a different, in a different realm. He's a man of authority, but I think kind of bringing this back to like where we're going to go is like, that's hard to endure that responsibility. Is it not like to, to lead from that front, you have to have endurance. You have to, be willing to take some shots, right? Maybe not. Maybe it's just an easy, easy walk being a man of authority because everyone listens to you. Everything does what you say. Well, maybe, there's maybe no, the question is, no, is it, is it no fences in your way? Is it, is it easier to serve God? Who's just all powerful, but no authority. It's almost like you just need a rescuer and no, there's no responsibility on your part. The problem with authority is there's responsibility you have too. So he's all powerful under authority. Then he gives you authority. That means you have to execute. That means there's responsibility that falls on you to accomplish what he's telling you to go do. So if he tells you, so think about what you just said. If he tells you to get from point A to point B and you come across scenarios you're not familiar with, and he's with you, and he already gave you the instruction, he's got to figure out how to do it. But that means he's given you the authority and the resources within that to go accomplish that. But if you just stop every time and say, oh, God, you got to do something, you're basically denying he's an authority. 
I mean, you think about this. If we go to immigration, since we have to go to immigration every year, and they say, I need a piece of paper that says X, Y, or Z. Well, I don't have that piece of paper. I don't know how to get that piece of paper. I don't even understand why I need that piece of paper because it's a redundant piece of paper. The piece of paper is already right here that I filed in, but now you want one that has a different kind of signature on it. But then I have to go back and go to the consulate in the U.S. to get that signature to basically say the same thing that we already have right here. So why do I need to do this circular thing? You can argue all day long with them, but the moment they say you have to go get that thing, you might as well just pack up and go get the thing. So you'll figure out how you're going to go get that thing because you're not going to get done what needs to be done because they're under authority. They're executing what the policy is of that country. You could argue all day long. They don't have the power to change the order. They have the authority to execute the order. Do you see the difference? So therefore, you now have to go execute the order. It's just inconvenience. The difference would be with God is when God isn't a tyrant. He's not trying to hold you back from something. He's trying to get you to something. So when he says go, like if he says get in the boat and go to the other side, it doesn't really matter if a storm comes because he said we're going to the other side. So sink, swim, whatever, float on a barrel. We're getting to the other side because that's where we're going. So I feel I'm safe. Right. Isn't that what happened with Paul? When the whole ship was going down, he's like, hey, everybody, just be okay. We're all going to make it. See, we don't, we don't, that's authority. He actually had to calm everybody. He had to calm everybody on the ship. He had to tell the soldiers to put their swords away. No one will escape. We will all end up on the beach. Paul wasn't talking from power. He was talking from authority. And everybody listened because they knew he could execute it. We've been given that power to execute what he is. But every promise we have is a, an authority delivery that we have power to execute on that promise. It's not outside of God. That's why you can't say, oh, you're trying to do that on your own. No, you can only do it because you have authority. And so we can we can execute that thing. So back to that, there's a practice in that. I think this is all extremely practical, but the vast majority of people and myself included at one point, we we don't actually believe God has authority and power. For whatever reason, so many believers, even those of us who understand grace, we still see him as, well, he's up there and he might intervene on things or he might not. And I don't really know. Or maybe he's given us certain authority and power here, but we don't really know the extent of it. And you can't really be sure, and you might get things wrong, so we don't operate in it. And I think that is actually, I, I really am starting to think that is what it looks like when you get, or I should say it this way, that's what it looks like to be entangled with the, the affairs of everyday life. Because you're no longer thinking, I and my father are together in unity he has all authority and power. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all the nations. There's position and power and authority that we have been given from Christ and from our Father. 
And I don't think we understand what it means to walk in that. It means there's things on your heart that you are supposed to step into and take because we've been given the authority and power in those, but we to not do that, I think is to be entangled with the affairs of everyday life because we, we are not respecting the fact that God has authority and power. He is the authority and power. And we are given the responsibility of operating in that same authority and power to a degree. And so for me, getting really practical with it was there's, there's desires that he put on my heart and to not pursue them is to actually disrespect the authority and power that he has and that he's given me because I allow myself to be entangled with all the affairs of daily life by not pursuing those things as a good soldier would and enduring the hardships that come with those things. Because, And I think part of the reason for that lack in a lot of people is we don't understand the consequences because in our culture, there is no consequence for disrespecting authority, none whatsoever. There's no consequence for disobeying authority in, in a broad sense. We don't have a concept of disobeying the authority over you is really bad and there are severe consequences. We don't have those here. You don't like what your parents say? Who cares? Just, you know, whatever. You're 13, you know better than your parents. You're 16, you're in college, you know better than every other grown-up or adult around you. And it you can disrespect them. They're old, stupid people. Who knows? I'm going to throw this out there and then you guys are going to have some really good personal examples of this. We've talked in the past about David's marathon and a lot of different physical things on this. Like how do you grow stronger? Well, go pick up a weight and put down the burger. Okay. What is the social equivalent of that? What's the emotional equivalent of going and lifting a heavy thing for no other reason than it'll hopefully make you stronger. What is the spiritual equivalent of that thing? I heard this guy on a, it was like a clip of a podcast. So we're stealing from another podcast once I say this, but um, he basically said, like, if you wanted to make somebody into something, for example, if you wanted to make somebody patient, what would you do to make them patient? And it was like, well, the answer was like, well, put them in situations where they have to be patient. Cause how can you become something if you don't, if you aren't in a situation where you have to, do that thing. And I think that's like very layman's terms of what we're talking about, I guess, like simplified. But I think like for being like, it's like Paul saying, you know, endure these things. And I think we can't become anything we don't endure is the point of what that guy was saying. So we have to like, if we're not, I think in our lives, there's like times where circumstances put us in the situations where we kind of grow into that naturally and maybe don't even realize it. But like, even like thinking something as simple as like, like, you know, a toddler doesn't, you have to not always say yes to a toddler because otherwise they'll never learn that they can't have something, you know, like for good reasons and whatnot. And I think it's like the same concept, just expanding upon that. It's like, you have to do, do things to learn them and endure. And they're not easy. Like you can't, learn the to endure hard things without enduring hard things it's like kind of ironic because how do you go do it like i think you just have i mean 
just go do it, I would say, which is like easy to say. And then, you know, obviously you're, you're sitting on the other side of this listening, like, well, easier said than done. Yeah, that's very true. I've experienced that in my own life. And I think like sometimes it's a matter of just the discipline to put yourself in the situations where you have to learn those things. And maybe that's just for me because I'm like stubborn and hard headed. So I just have to like, you know, smash my head into a wall to figure out that the wall's there basically. But like, I think for me speaking personally, is like, like when you said, how do you become patient? Well, the only way I know I've become patient is where I've been dealt with people in my life who were very taxing of my patience that I had, and I still had to remain patient. And knowing that remaining patient was the best possible thing I could do in that situation for myself mainly. And so I think, you know, that's kind of like a rough example, but just going and doing it and putting yourself in the situation where you have to like David to be ready for the marathon. Of course, running like, you know, from my perspective, running sucks and it's not fun, but how are you going to go do the thing that's like, if David was like, well, I hate running. So I'm going to just work out my biceps as much as I can. And then hopefully I'll be ready for the marathon. Like that would not have been the right way to go about it, obviously. So it's like in our life, like, well, I want to be able to do hard things, but then we don't ever go do hard things. Like, I think there's like some point where we have to look to the future and go, okay, do I want to be successful in this? Well, maybe I should stop working out my biceps all the time and actually go for a run. That way I can run the marathon. I, that's, that's how I would have to go about it anyways, because, you know, just gotta suffer through it and endure it but it's it's worth it on the other side like i guess that's what makes it easier to say almost from experience is that okay i have seen where i've gone through hard things like patient for me is a good example and learning to be patient and now like working with people in particular hopefully none of my old co-workers are listening to this but i learned patience by doing that and so, yeah, I think that's the best way to go about doing it is do what Paul said, endure hard things. So that's why I say that. Yeah, I think if I could slightly summarize my rambling from earlier after you added to it and stuff, I would say like my answer now that we've talked about it and stuff would be like when you ask like, well, what about my passion? Then I would say, like, obviously, with the context of this conversation, we'll get a passion for doing hard things, because that's what David Goggins has. He has a passion to do hard things. And then all his other stuff flows from that. And I think that summarizes maybe what I was trying to say is what came in my head is if you have the passion to do hard things. And I'm thinking, too, of that verse, like um, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Like if you have a passion of doing hard things in life, you will endure to the end. And I think like, you know, not to dote on our generation, but us, like I know me personally, it's like my phone, your phone teaches you not to get into like another subject, but teaches you everything the opposite of that, like instant gratitude, instantly having what you want without having to do anything. And so I think the solution to that and the solution to like our lives and enduring is doing what David Goggins does and what the Bible commands us to. And I think that's having a passion to do hard things.
And I think like, that's what David did with the marathon. Why would David go do a marathon? Because he has a passion to do hard things. There is no other explainable reason in my head that he would do it or that like for all of us on the podcast do things the way we do and that like great men in history do. Well, why do you do hard things, David? He just is making a clock. Gears, da-da-da, complicated, redoing, starting over, redoing. I'm like, why are you making a clock with a pendulum and all mechanical, putting it on the board, having to have all the gears, having to figure out the ratio of gear to minute to da-da-da-da, what's the proper weight that needs to go on, you know, like a grandfather clock, the whole thing, it's about that size. Why do you do things like this? Well, the clock, I just found fun. I like doing thinking. I need a new project. I wish I could tell you why I ran a marathon. I really don't know. I thought it would be cool. I think everyone kind of has a thought behind their head, like, that would be pretty cool for a marathon. But there was a buildup to you wanting to do stuff like that. Yeah, I guess. I kind of just wanted to do something hard. I guess there might have been a bit of pride behind that. So, uh, I don't know. I really don't know. I just wanted to do it. I found a friend that would want to do it as well. And so that kind of secured it, making it possible not to do it. All right. Since he's not doing a very good lead up to how he gets there, by the way, you're not very prideful by the time you get halfway through the training. Um, so if you prideful want to do something, just go do something hard and it will become pretty sobering by the time you're midway through. Cause so may, maybe pride gets you there, but it ain't going to keep you there. Uh, you'll find something else. So prior to this, David, you did a, every four hours, you did four miles for 48 hours. What made you do that? Um, I don't know. I just found a challenge and I wanted to see if I could do it. I don't know. There's a kind of a testing and I kind of feel there's not really a, if I said this was the only reason I did it, that would be a lie. I don't really know exactly. I think, I don't know. There's kind of just a thing. And I feel like every guy's brain, I don't know what girl's brains, guy's brain, that you see something like a really spicy chip or say, for example, a bunch of milk that you could chug and see you can chug it faster and you know you're going to feel sick after. Or say, for example, a game where you slap each other until someone gives up. I feel like there's just a trigger in my brain that just that would be pretty that would be pretty cool if I did that and I just have to do it I think that's kind of what triggered it to be honest if I'm in full honesty that's probably the the trigger that triggered it I don't like running never did for yeah um I'm really not being too useful in this podcast right now but okay let me now let me go back and for those listening, we could add a little spirituality beside the slap fest and the spicy Dorito. 
Um, it, it is true, David would pop into these challenges. But there was a point you were reading about certain kind of uh, iconic characters of old, whether it was like a Smith Wigglesworth or a John G. Lake. And you had mentioned that you, it was kind of a predecessor or about the time that you just said, I'm going to read my Bible. And you didn't just read, like you gave yourself hours every day, or at least for the most part, many days to absorb this and went through it a couple, read it a couple times over year and a half, I guess. And you had saw that the men, the men that made the difference gave everything to the thing that they were, were believing. And so it doesn't just, it's, it's cool when you see the marathon and it's funny when you see just a teenage kid, but then when you see the other side getting an understanding of the cost to do something that's great or the cost to do something you truly believe in and kind of seeing you go down that journey and the things that you cut out of your life and the things that you chose to do, what was the stirring point of that? Actually, that one is a bit different than the marathon because I actually saw a lot of importance in that. Uh, I kind of saw myself going in a direction that I was like, eh, I could, if I want to get somewhere in life, which I feel like everyone has that goal in life, that goal, you want to do something. Um, I knew I had to, I knew the Bible is kind of the initial way. And it came from the first revelation that, Paul, the first thing he did is he spent a few years in the wilderness to meditate on the scriptures and pray and things like that. If you look in Galatians, like the first chapter of Galatians, uh, that is kind of what triggered it. But something I did that I didn't realize, like, is a psychological principle until now, is uh, Jordan Peterson makes mention in his Maps of Meaning lectures, I forget which one. But he says that in order to do something, you not only have to set a motivation to do it or like a reason you want to do it, but to be the most effective possible way to do it is you also have to set a fear behind. Like, for example, a mouse, you set like a cheese. It really wants that cheese, but all of a sudden it's too hard to get the cheese and all of a sudden finds the cheese isn't worth it. And so like they did it by like measuring the spring tension on the tail or whatever. But then you put a cat behind the rat and the cheese. All of a sudden, there's a lot of motivation to get this cheese, right? The cheese might not even be the goal. It's just this cat behind it. And then the cheese is a byproduct of getting away from the cat. And so I kind of instilled a mentality like if I keep going down this road, I'm going right not caring about the bible or not not caring about the bible but didn't really know anything in it if i kept going down the non-firm foundation eventually luke says there's a good chance you're going to lose your foundation right once the storms come crashing against it, it's going to break it all down right and that was one thing that kind of instilled the cat behind me to 
I was like, okay, even if I want this goal, which the goal of it is a really good goal. I mean, you know, you know the Bible now. I didn't really know how much the goal would be influential. There's a lot more to it. But the fear of that, which you're going to eventually had to kind of eliminate a little bit because it's not a good way to think about, oh, if I don't do this, I'm in trouble. But I think that's what kind of motivated that is the the balance of the two motivations. Could it be said similar to how Paul is telling Timothy of endure hardness as a good soldier, understand these things because of what you're be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus for what you're to face. So if you don't want to do those things, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you, but it's going to get awful. So it's not really a fear of whether God's loving you or not. It's, it's more of a deep respect that if I can go this way, there is going to be something awesome. But if I stay where I am, it's going to be even more disastrous than I thought. Yeah. So I, I think that picture, and I will tell you, it was really more after that scenario that all of a sudden the other things started coming at a different level. He's always been creative and wanted to do, do crazy projects. But when he, but there's a, been a shift. It wasn't even just the running. It was a discipline of I'm letting go of that and I'm just going to keep doing the harder thing. I'm just going to keep doing the harder thing. And even working out with him has been a challenge to me because I would usually just do my workout. But he's like, you got, why are you stopping right there? And it's real frustrating because I want to. Mm -hmm. You have two more reps in you. But he, there's been there's a change of thought. These aren't manufactured things, and I really believe it stemmed from that that place. And I think this is what Paul. And so when I watch his life, like it, I, I wished I had a teenage life like he had his teenage life. I don't mean like things are easy. He has a lot of challenges. He's not in America. He's in another country. There's thing, but. The, the thinking and the enjoyment of life because he does hard things on his own that he chooses to do. These aren't like his family disciplines. This is just like he's chosen to add discipline on top of discipline. And I, I sit and look, go, you, you, your life flows from you. People are affected by it. Be honest with you, the youth group we started wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for David. He gathered all these people from all over the place the because he was willing to go do these hard things and connect with people even when he didn't want to go connect with people but he chose to go connect to people and be friendly and be a friend even when it wasn't really always reciprocated and now today it's like he's this connector point in the in the city and i'm not here just to uh, he is my son and i'll get i'll give you the hard things about him too at a later point so i'm not bragging on every action because he's still teenage kid that's living life you know and thing to grow in but i'm telling you there's some things in these principles to be grabbed onto at a younger age that are powerful for where we go and i like what you said caleb learn get a passion to do hard things make your passion to do hard things not stupid things you don't need to go eat spicy chips or drink six gallons of milk to prove that you can 
Um, I'm not going to have, I have no, we're, we'll have, that's a different conversation later. I'm talking about just the willingness to do the hard things is so rewarding. Yeah. If I would almost add to that thing, this could like get a little tacky or cliche, but even from what David said and from my life experiences, like David saying like a little bit of the fear, like I would say, find a passion for doing hard things before the hard things find a passion to find you. Because if you don't go do the hard things first, life is going to come along and give you the hard things anyways. And they're not going to be in circumstances that you've created for yourself where the gratification of doing it yourself helps you get through it. And if like, otherwise, like I've seen it happen to friends and people who like, I mean, we just know it happens in life. You don't do the things you should do and it comes back and bites you in the butt. But if you take the initiative to do the hard things, I think, it'll be much more rewarding because in a sense you had like you were being the good soldier, like Paul said, because you stepped forward. You didn't wait for the enemy to come to you. And then you were sitting in your foxhole scared, like another band of brothers references. Like they're always like, move, move, move. Cause if you didn't move, you died. And so I think like, that's what made me think like David, you were saying like with the fear aspect, I think initially if that helps you start, and then you find the passion for hard things, then that gives you an objective of somewhere to go. But if you have to start just knowing that the hard things are coming for you, so you better start doing them anyways, well, that's, you got to start somewhere. So start with at least that thought in your head. Calling back to what you were saying about passion, I think following your passion is a delusion because often what you're passionate about isn't going to, it's not going to push you anywhere. I'm not passionate about making cold calls. I wasn't passionate about agriculture. I wasn't passionate about anything related to my job now. But doing it consist consistently over time has produced the passion in me to, to go further. And so if you were to take me right out of school and say, what are you passionate about? I would have told you this great big thing and I would have never done anything about it because passion is a delusion. Yeah. I want to quick add on to that. Like people that say they're really passionate, like say for example, uh, I found this quote by like, I think it was Ed Sheeran, just some famous musician. And there was a point in their music where all of a sudden they had to find another passion or something they enjoyed doing like art or something because music started to become a job right and if you don't keep pushing through even when it becomes a job because every passion you find is eventually going to become a job right i mean even athletes don't like doing athlete athletic stuff 24 7 or musicians don't constantly enjoy do, writing music i mean there's always a point where it becomes hard and you have to do it i mean a lot of the times i can't speak for everyone i'm not a musician but their passion all of a sudden became a job and so then but they had to keep working through it because that's that's what they do you know just kind of add on to that And I'll just leave the final thoughts 
I don't know how we got from endurance to this, but I think it's very important because there is no endurance if it's based on the wrong thing. It's got to be based on something stable and something very early on that Jason had said is there's some things that I know in my heart God's put there. And I'm telling you, knowing Jason, I believe God had put those things in his heart, but he also knows these aren't just going to come about. There's something God put. So there's times that he's not even trying, he, he can't make it all come together to fit it. But you keep moving. There's something that keeps driving you towards that. And that the biggest drive should be of the return of of our master that's made us. I mean, that's that's kind of the biggest drive. But then the second one is the responsibility that we feel that he gave us that we can't do in our own power. So a lot of times people say, that's my passion. Uh, it's sometimes it's more of a, it feels almost more like a burden, but you know, you want to. So it, it keeps propelling you forward. And I think that's a big difference. Like even when, you know, we brought David God, oh, so we should just love being in pain. No, no one loves being in pain. What they they don't love is the lies our, our human nature has told us that keeps saying this. And there's this frustration that you're you're getting to. And so we could spend all day long on all the characters of the Bible. But the idea that Joseph went from where he was to the king, to loving his family, that he couldn't wait to see him when they're the ones who caused all the misery, but he had a dream. He had a dream that would preserve a promise that his grandfather and his, his father and his grandfather had, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had a dream that would preserve that. And so he, it was a responsibility. It was a weight. It was a mission, but he couldn't make it all happen. He just kept doing the thing that was in front of them that seemed hard, and he kept moving them up and moving them up and moving them up to one of the greatest leaders of the world that says he became a father to Pharaoh. The slave became a father to Pharaoh. That's that's what this is like. And don't say it's just my follow my passion because you won't love 90% of the journey. You'll appreciate when it's over 90% of the journey, but you are not going to love 90% of the journey. And we'll leave it with that. Um, one thing I just kind of want to leave it with uh, as we close up the episode, keep in mind that all of this and and you guys are going to have to open up Second Timothy chapter 2 and read it yourselves. But all this is from the perspective of being strong in the grace that we've been given through Christ. And, and we've been talking a lot about the soldier and endurance now, but keep in mind as we go through the next couple episodes, it's not just hardship and endurance. There's an athlete who is crowned a champion. There's a farmer who is partaking of the first fruits. There's a lot more than just the hardship and being entangled with the affairs of the world but that is a huge part of the journey as well so take that exhortation words from your father and from the word of god and we appreciate you guys being here so until next time keep the faith and stay in the fight